Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, of course, is Adam Pawatic. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Andrew Friedis, who is the head of Canadian markets for a company called Wired Score. This is a fun topic because I suspect there are many of you out there not familiar with what Wired Score does, but it is something that I think everybody in the commercial real estate industry should be familiar with. Before I go to Andrew, first, let me just remind our our listeners that uh, Adam and I will be doing the after show once we're done our conversation with Andrew. So stay tuned after the jingle and, and we'll sort of digest, dissect the conversation. But of course, let's get, let's get to it. Andrew, thanks for coming on, first and foremost. Yeah, thank you guys. Great to be here as long as I've known both of you and, and listen to the podcast. It's great to be a guest. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, we should put that because people will probably sense it. I mean, Andrew and I have known each other, I don't know, four, five, six, seven years now for a while, for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and, yep. <laughs> and, and certainly shared some fun. Uh, so there's some familiarity and, and commonality. And I think Adam's cut from the same vein. So it fits right in, of course. So anyway, let, that's not what we're here for. We're not here to share personal stories. Let's go backwards. We'll get to what Wired Score is really quickly. But first, Andrew, just give us a background and set ourselves up to you know how you ended up being the head of Canadian markets for such an interesting organization. Well, Aaron, we're yeah, asking, Andrew, yeah. asking Andrew to share his personal story. We do want a no, personal no. story, just not yours and mine. We want oh, yeah, right. Story. Yes, fair. Yeah, yeah. Nobody, cares. <laughs> Nobody cares about us. They just care about yeah. our guests. Yeah. <laughs> I hope. I hope. Yeah, no, for sure. Thanks, guys. Yeah, so I got into this industry back in 2008 as kind of my first professional job, if you will, as as a broker. So primarily on on the tenant rep office leasing side and worked for a couple of firms in Toronto for the better part of almost a decade. After taking a little bit of time away from commercial real estate for some other interesting endeavors you both know about, but got back to the business by way of CoStar. And so managed major accounts for CoStar, the, the data platform, research platform for commercial real estate. So kind of made major account management for them for close to two years, which is where I was when Wired Score found me. And been a great ride, been here almost two years now, uh, helping manage and grow the Canadian business. The cool story about WiredScore in Canada is that they had grown kind of organically in Canada through where we're globally headquartered in New York. And so there was a great platform to start from when, when I came into to the role and have been doing that since since 2019. Andrew's being humble, but as a broker, you were exposed to a whole wide variety of different asset classes and functionalities. And then even at CoStar, as you called it, you called it major accounts. Uh, you were exposed to, I mean, you had the broker side of business, but now you're exposed to lenders, which, you know, of course, you know, where you and I met, but you really got a full real estate education, commercial real estate education yeah. through those through those two previous, you know, employment opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point, Aaron. And I think it did certainly set me up to understand how and where and frankly, why Wired Score could grow across Canada, right? I mean, to your point, I, I, I negotiated leases across various asset types and even did some investment work as a broker. But ultimately, you know, coming to CoStar and, and managing accounts from major lenders like yourselves through to the brokers, through to, you know, property management companies or large institutional investors, it was interesting to see how all of those people thought about the data that they subscribed to with CoStar and how they ultimately then thought about the business. So it was a great kind of education, as you say, through the lens of my clients at CoStar. And, and I think that's what allowed me to, to realize what the opportunity was with Wired Score from the perspective of what they were doing for the industry. If you, if you... And let, let me just set it up a little bit more. 
CoStar is a tech company. So that also gave you kind of an interesting exposure to just that side of commercial real estate. And we're not here to yeah. promote CoStar, but it's, <laughs> and, uh, and I, yeah. I, I, I assume you have a, you left with a, with a positive attitude, but CoStar is a, sure. a, a pretty cool business, but, but predominantly tech focused, which, which I think sets you up yeah. so perfectly for this transition to Wiredstore. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think it taught me sometimes the aversion commercial real estate has uh, with technology might might be kind of areas where they're adverse to change. I think much like at Wired Score, helping helping a business understand why to do things differently than they're doing today when they've already seen a lot of success, and and more importantly, the opportunity to educate how the industry or business is changing. So, yeah, it's a good point. Just to kind of very different businesses, of course, but just the, the intersection of real estate and technology and, and how that can how that can change the industry for sure. But how do you view the two then at Wired Score? Like what percent is this a tech company? What percent is this real estate? Oh, it's a good one. It really is kind of right in between, Adam. I think it's educating look, our clients, who we service is the commercial real estate industry. And really who we're trying to service is the end users of commercial real estate, really, and helping add kind of that that information, kind of that transparency around something that's been a little bit not transparent for, for lack of a better term, but really educating that industry about technology. And so sitting between telecommunications and building technology and real estate. And I think that's what I personally enjoy about the organization is just the ability to help share that education. Well, let's, <laughs> Adam, as some of our listeners know, Adam and I kind of text each other back and forth through this and, and just to make sure we're not jumping on each other because, you know, we're sitting virtually and to make sure that we're on the same page. He just texted me, what is Wired Score? <laughs> if I'm wondering, the listeners are wondering. You know, that's the, that's what I'm thinking. That's probably somewhere to start, hey? We, yeah. we started getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. no, no. That, look, so Wired Score is the company behind Wired Score certification. And ultimately, it is the only global digital connectivity rating platform for real estate. So essentially, we, we are a certification company. Kind of interestingly, started actually as a public-private partnership in New York, where we're still globally headquartered. And so I think the story of it is, is an interesting one. It helps real estate people understand the need in the sense that at the time we were founded, we actually were, like I said, a, a public-private partnership. And the reason for it, Michael Bloomberg was the mayor at the time. Silicon Valley had been migrating into New York for many years at that point. And ultimately, challenging the real estate community and identifying a bit of a lack of transparency, and as I say, a bit of a knowledge gap by way of every broker and owner can talk about the market, that what the building has to offer, rental rates or vacancy rates, labor pools, proximity to transit, whatever whatever goes into real estate decisions. But these kind of more technology-based companies were starting to ask questions that the industry didn't really understand around how well-connected the buildings were, what they could offer. And our founder, who's still our CEO, Ari Berendrak, he essentially came at this kind of with a management consultant lens. So he's not a real estate guy by background. He wasn't a technology guy by background, but said, hey, you know, how has the industry really addressed knowledge gaps or, or lacks transparency in the past and kind of landed on a certification to help address the need? So that's kind of how we were founded. We're actually the fastest growing certification our industry scene. We, we certified over 700 million square feet globally since 2013. And as you guys know, and we can talk about in a little bit, we've kind of gone from certifying thousands of, of office properties across you know, North America, Europe, Australia, UK, into now working through the multifamily residential asset class as well. So launching Wired Score Home this year as well. So maybe let's just set the stage. You talked about a certification company. I don't want to say who are your competitors, but who are your colleagues in that space? 
just I think to maybe just allow people to understand kind of if they sure. can reference in their their heads how it fits yeah. in the commercial real estate world. Yeah, no, for sure. I think I think it's not unlike we're commonly referred to as the technology version of a lead or an energy star or a well fit well, right? So we sit in that space, but we actually the only ones who really are rating the level of digital connectivity. And really, what does that mean, right? It's it's the actual infrastructure that enables a well-connected building. You know, I think what, especially on the office side, goes certainly underappreciated is how often, and we don't have to talk about how companies are relying on the internet, right? The, the internet's between companies and their businesses in, in ways like never before, right? And there's a lot of reasons for that. So companies can't afford to be without the internet and the internet connection. I think what the industry has typically seen that as is, well, that sounds like an internet service provider issue if there's a problem, right? And sometimes that's absolutely the case. What goes underappreciated is how often it actually has to do with the physical infrastructure of the building, right? How services are coming in, where these things are stored, how they're distributed through the building. And these are absolutely things that, that owners and managers of real estate have responsibility and, and purview over. Well, maybe we could dive a little deeper on that. You know, describe a well-connected building, like a building that just really impressed you from a wire score perspective and what Canadian city was it in? <laughs> or maybe it's opposite. Go to the worst connected building you can yeah. see. Maybe that's easier to describe. <laughs> <Attentive>. <laughs> hey, yeah, you know what? A building that doesn't have fiber running into it, right? Who, who can't provide a fiber internet services, probably not doing so well from a connectivity standpoint. But joking aside, like I would say the best in class new developments coming out of the ground, the CIBC squares, the the Portland Commons or the, the B6 uh, in, in Vancouver. There's some, some really amazing well-connected buildings out there and I can share kind of how, how and why those are. I would say one of my favorite buildings actually, and maybe stories that we've got is the Sunlight Building in Montreal, right? You've got a building that's just recently celebrated its hundredth year. And in its defense, it should be poorly connected, being designed and built before the internet was a thing. And yet the managers and and owners of that property have have done some really great things to invest in the infrastructure and make sure that it actually is, in fact, a wired score platinum building. And this is actually also why I think our certification is important because someone may look at that building and say, oh, it's beautiful, it's iconic, but look how old it is. There's no way it can give me a good experience. And I'm not going to name names, but I've, I've seen buildings that look beautiful and shiny and are beautiful and shiny, and yet, frankly, are very poorly connected, right? Things were overlooked, potentially, or poorly planned from the design stages and just make such that it, it, it has challenges from a connectivity perspective. So to answer your question, what, what's a well-connected building, right? It, it, from an office standpoint, it really does start outside in, right? So we, we look at what services are in the building, right? It's what services could be coming into the building, right? I think, again, just that simple power of choice, right? It was interesting to learn that there are some buildings out West that TELUS was actually able to convince to give them an exclusivity on fiber services in the building for sometimes fairly long amounts of time. And TELUS is a business, and I don't blame them for this, but to think that the tenants of those buildings don't literally pay for the fact that they're the only service provider in the building would be naive, right? And so I think it's incumbent on owners to really ensure that they're able to, frankly, offer a wider range of providers. But then there's also different types of service, right? So dark fiber, as an example, which provides kind of the dedicated, more secure connectivity or or service. So we kind of look at that and the more people ask me, how many services should I have? 
as many as possible, as many as reasonable, right? Because the more competition in your building, you're able to actually help your tenants bring down their cost per speed, if you will. So that's kind of the starting point. But from an infrastructure standpoint, it's how the services come into the building, right? And throughout the kind of journey of the internet circuit outside in and through to your tenant space, you're looking to just mitigate single points of failure in many cases, right? So it's that redundancy, if you will. So that looks like a best-in-class building having not just a good amount of capacity and multiple conduits coming in from one street, but ideally multiple points of entry, right? More than one point of entry to the building, separated, hopefully just different sides of the building. Why? Well, road construction is basically a season in Canada. So when that's going on, if, if someone fibers top line of services, if that gets knocked out, the internet's out for the whole building. If that's the only way the services come in, doesn't matter what the SLA says, it doesn't matter how good the infrastructure in the building is, right? So you want to have some diversity that way. Kind of coming into the building, where is it actually stored, right? Not that long ago, and Aaron, I've shared some funny stories with you in the past, but like we see everything. We see DMARC panels for fiber mounted on the wall of a parking garage, under a staircase, next to the boiler or you know whatever other utility. Because again, in defense of a lot of older buildings who were designed and built before the internet, this was an afterthought. It, it had to be kind of retroactively fit into the building. So a best-in-class building is going to have a dedicated telecommunications room, right? It's going to have backup power for it. Like, let me ask you something. How long, and there's different studies that I could share with you guys after, but if I had to ask you, how long does it take after the internet goes down for the average office worker to shut their computer? Hey, Adam, let's go grab a beer. Let's just head home for the day or let's go for early lunch. Like how long, how long do you think that takes? 35 seconds, maybe a minute. I don't know. It's the depends on their seniority in the company. I think uh, how fast it takes. If you're new to the company, you're probably there for an hour. If uh, you're old, then it's, uh, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's actually less than 20 seconds, right? People don't have the attention spans. And it's not just attention spans, guys. It's like for myself, our entire business is housed in the cloud, right? And that's, and that's more and more, frankly, what we're seeing. And I can talk to that a little bit in a, in a sec in terms of how COVID has exacerbated that. But the reality is, if the internet goes down for me, I can't do my job. I can't access not just email or be on a call like this with you guys. It's, I can't even see any documents, my contracts, my anything, right? And so what can I do without the internet is, is very little. And so the reason I reference that is because you won't see a building without backup power for life safety, as they should. Lights got to stay on, some heat, right? Elevators. Well, what percent, or quiz, quiz time again, how, how, what percent of buildings do you think in Canada uh, granted, of course, this is of, of the 75 million feet we've certified, have backup power for telecoms when we initially rate them. 25. Three. Well, price is right. Aaron wins, but Adam's closer. It's around 20%. It's around 20%, okay. right? I so, won the first so one, by the way. Practice? I said, I said <laughs> 35. It was 20 seconds. I was at an <laughs> yeah, hour. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's, he's being a, a gamer. He's clearly I actually a, really, a really good employee. <laughs> Or he's still storing all his documents on his computer, one of the two, right? Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's the reality, right? People overlook that type of thing. And if you plan your telecom room properly, you can actually have the proper power. But even again, make sure that unauthorized personnel can't get access, right? Like I have a lot of stories about different buildings we've audited where, I, like as I say, if, if the panel holding the DMARC for fiber for the whole building's in plain sight on P1, okay, a couple things here, right? Someone backs their car into that. As you guys know, fiber is glass, right? It's light, traveling through glass. 
you just back a car into that. Someone nudges it the wrong way. You could be not the internet, right? More scary is non-technical guys, non-engineers like us. I could show you something on Amazon for I think 34 bucks that you could actually attach to exposed fiber lines and be able to pull, essentially it's an x-ray, pull data off exposed fire line, uh, fiber lines. That's kind of scary to think about. So you want to have these, this infrastructure and these things actually stored really in, in well-secured areas, right? So that's, that's another big aspect. 65 King Street East, the future main home of Google, as you guys probably know. Cartera has worked with us on now a couple projects, Portland Commons as well. Initially, their plans, before I joined the company, they, had, they were planning towards a gold certification, which is an incredible building. When Google came to them, and they started talking through the, their needs and requirements. And, and by way of understanding, I think, partially what we would have scored on to get them to platinum, they are now a platinum building. What was the things they missed? Well, it was actually a lot more full building redundancy. A very good example of that is, well, if you're going to pull services in from two different places, why have them housed in the same room? Because if something happens in that room, there's your single point of failure, right? So now, now they actually are designing multiple telecommunications rooms that will feed them diverse risers, things like that. Yeah, Andrew, and that's a good, let me take us there. Like, let's, let's kind of talk about ROI and sort of tenant advocacy that you are required to do or, because I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's who cares, right? Like, okay, great. You've got this platinum wired store. Do tenants understand what that means and, and how much of this is educating tenants so that they appreciate that this is truly a platinum wired stored building that it's worth an extra, and that's, this is the question, what's it worth? per square foot on an office lease. And we're going to get into home score after this, but let's just talk about yeah, on the yeah, office yeah. side first yeah. and foremost. Yeah, no, it's a great shout because I am always the first to admit to owners, to brokers, to whomever I'm talking to that I am not suggesting every tenant's walking into their lobby saying, so what's your wired score, right? We're not there yet. I look forward to a day we might be. We're growing quickly, but we're not there. But what I tell people is that the things we're scoring on are increasingly becoming questions that are asked as part of the leasing process. And again, I really think, guys, that this is something that we're going to see increase significantly through in the wake of COVID, if you will. And I'll explain why, right? Of course, the Googles of the world, the Salesforce, the, you know, whatever tech companies are going to be asking about how well set up the building is. They understand the space. They have requirements. And a lot of times I'll, I'll talk to maybe owners or developers who say, you know, I get it, but you know, we don't really cater to tech tenants. Okay, fair enough. Well, here's the reality, right? A global pandemic hits. And I always joke, like, when I started in brokerage, thank God I didn't have a technical person on tour with me, right? A CTO or someone who was asking questions I didn't understand because I would have been quite ill-equipped to answer those questions. I think if you talk to most brokers, they'll agree that this is happening more and more. There, there are more technical people involved in real estate decisions. Now, let's talk about real estate requirements not that long ago where you're going to want to understand what their requirements are from a server room perspective, right? So, okay, First National is going to lease, you know, two floors and how much of that space you're going to need to store your stacked equipment where all your data is stored and things like that. Well, there's been a migration to cloud-based platforms for a long time. But let's paint a picture where a company hasn't, right? So COVID hits, Aaron Consulting Co. is in 5,000 square feet in a suburban office building. He's got 35 people in the space, maybe whatever. And all of a sudden, pandemic hits, flip of a switch, everyone has to go home, has to work from home. And are, you're trying to run your business from everyone's living room. Well, if all of the data and the platforms, the information that you use to run your business are sitting in a server room in a building you can't get into, 
you're going to have to think about the way you're running your business, right? And so Satya Nadella, Microsoft CEO in, I think, May or April or May, like early on COVID and the first, let's put it this way, Microsoft's first earning call post-COVID said he had already, they had already seen two years worth of digital transformation in two months, right? And this is the exact thing we're talking about, right? We're, we're saying businesses had to understand how to digitally transform to survive a pandemic, but then mitigate the risk of these things happening before. So all that's to say, I think more tenants are going to be asking the questions of the properties they choose to call home to now understanding that they should be thinking about this in a different way, right? Like Aaron's Consulting Co. didn't maybe even know what redundant internet services meant a year ago. And I think his IT manager is now going, look, we've really changed. We can't afford to not have the internet if we're going to run our business. You might want to subscribe to a secondary circuit. Well, now you have to ask your owner about a lot of things that, that go into that being truly redundant. Well, and to that point for our, our fictional Aaron Consulting Co., if you rhyme off that the building's got, you throw a bunch of technical specs at him, he's not going to get yeah. it. You know, his consulting company, all he knows is he makes charges far to bucks an hour for consulting work. If he's down for half a day, he's out $1,600. And so there's a value. Sure. You know, anybody's going to understand the value of, of constant connectivity. But something like Wirescore makes it appreciable to everybody, boils it down to something understandable. I mean, to relate to one of my other big passions in life, wine reviews were always difficult until Robert Parker invented the 100-point scale, and now that's all that anybody talks about because it's very understandable. Talking about aromas for 10 minutes and doing for you, but give me 98 points out of 100. I get that, even though if I'm not uh, super versed in it. Or walk so, scores, yeah. right? Everybody, when you're buying a house now, it's just, what's the walk score? I don't, yeah. I don't even know yeah. what goes into that, but I'm sure it's some sort of algorithm that says like a certain amount of parks and recreation and, and restaurants in your vicinity. Therefore, score of seven. Yeah. That's less than eight. I want eight. You know, I don't know, right? Like, it's, it's really interesting <laughs> that way. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. And, and part of what we deliver as part of the certification, not to make it about that, but it's the building fact sheet. And that's back to Addis point. It's like, I'm, I could talk to you about technical specs and what goes into this. And if there is a CTO or a more technical person or an IT manager for the company who's going, hey, we should think about this, this or that, they're going to ask questions at some point in the real estate process. But we create a fact sheet on every building so that the broker who has a ton of things to think about in the decision and the company who's got a ton of things to think about in the decision, I call it the like answering nine or 10 out of 10 questions the CTO has. Now, it goes one of two ways, right? And I've seen it go one of two ways. I've, got, I've seen it go talking to brokers like, yeah, no, you know, we handed that to the technical person. They go, oh, okay, yeah, great. And they can actually get back to the real estate deal at hand. They've seen situations as well where they hand it to the tenant and they go, oh, I didn't think of this stuff before. Oh, I, oh okay. You actually have all those providers. We actually, we, we use Zayo corporately or, oh, redundant points of entry. Well, what does that mean? And in the fact sheet, it'll actually explain why that's helpful. And so from that point, it becomes a bit of an education and, and, and helps you differentiate. So that was a super long-winded way to get to like, if every tenant's not asking for it, why does it really matter? And I think the short answer is, they're going to ask about these things, maybe not us by name. And so we're really just trying to help the industry get their heads and arms wrapped around how to position their assets, what to be thinking about, how to improve. And then how do you talk about telecoms to real estate people, right? What's easier, Andrew, getting clients in that are in the middle, early stages of a development or going to the older buildings that truly are underserved or haven't been built to accommodate these things? Yeah, that's a good one. I think it's actually just a different conversation for both there. And I think developers who work with us consistently 
we're doing multiple projects with Heinz at the moment. We're on our second project with Cartera. We've got certain clients in Canada that are starting to work with us consistently on their projects. And I think what they see it as is, okay, let's get them involved early. Let's get this stuff planned properly early in the project. We have a blank canvas here. Let's do it as best as possible, right? Again, going back to those old assets in their defense, there's only so much they can do. There's only so much space in the building. There's only so much they can actually viably do that's still going to make it a, a quality investment in that standpoint. I think on the development side, it's just a conversation around being best in class and being able to talk about it. On the old building side, it's, look, you've got a liquid asset. You've got bricks and mortar, needing good tenants, we're paying good rents for long terms. And, and these are things that are increasingly important. And so there's clients we have that have no aspiration of gold or platinum certifications. They, they, some who, I just want to get to certified. I want to know that we're meeting this minimum level of acceptance. And then they lean on us to what's reasonable. How do we improve? Maybe that's a planning process from a budgetary perspective over a number of years, but having that kind of portfolio purview, if you will, and, and low oversight to understand where they're performing. So it's just different conversations. I think there's a lot of developers who frankly assume they're doing all the right things and maybe that's assumption they shouldn't make and sometimes they're right. Whereas the older stock buildings, those owners realize like, I don't really know what I don't know. And so it's it's kind of that understand what they have and then maybe where to go from there. Do you ever get approached by tenants who are looking at multiple buildings who want you to rank or compare them? It's interesting you ask that. As a matter of fact, yes, we have or more specifically, tenant rep brokers. There are companies, I, I think it's actually more prevalent in the UK, maybe in the US a little bit. I haven't seen it as much in, in Canada, to be, to be frank. I guess, what would you call them? Maybe consultants who do tenant due diligence, where they'll actually go in and, and essentially kind of almost perform what ends up being like a wired score audit. Like, right? So our process is we actually put a wired score person in the building to physically audit the infrastructure. Yeah, so I think that's actually becoming more and more. And yeah, I think there's an opportunity there. I think it's, again, it's something that tenants are asking more of. Maybe a little less in Canada today, but we, we can kind of use the US and sometimes the Europe, of course, is our crystal ball, right? And Andrew, we've covered a ton of the office stuff and we're going to get into some of the other assets that you guys are focused on. But before we do that, you've got some other products focused on office for the time being, one of them being smart scores. Maybe just describe what that is and how that fits into yeah. the product line. For sure. For sure. Thank you. Yeah, it, it is going to be our newest product. We're launching in April of this year globally. So we're really excited to do our first actual truly global product launch. And in the past, we've done it kind of country by country. But essentially, we've developed the first global smart building certification, as you say, called SmartScore. So we were naturally positioned, having worked with over 700 owners and developers on digital connectivity around the world, to kind of answer the next question that we were being asked. And that's, what is a smart building and, and what makes a building truly smart? And so in short, we basically put together a smart building council where we put together some of the best minds from I think around 40-ish owners and developers around the world. Canadian content there were companies like Ivanhoe Cambridge and Kingset, Allied, kind of sat on that council to help the industry at large kind of come together and say, well, okay, well what is a smart building, right? So have that kind of definition. And then our team has kind of taken that and built out the certification or the benchmark, the global benchmark on how to rate what a smart building really is. So we're excited to launch that as well, as I said, in April of this year. So can't really share much about the companies and, and projects yet that are, that are going to be involved there. But again, there's some Canadian content, which I'm, I'm excited about. And hopefully we can kind of continue to be a global leader from that perspective as well. Andrew, I know you're also just at the precipice of launching 
Wired Score Home, which is of particular interest to Aaron and I, because obviously we focus on the apartment industry, and that is a product sure. for, for this. So, you know, tell us what that's about. Yeah, it's something we're really excited about. So we launched Wired Score Home geared for, of course, the multifamily kind of residential real estate asset class in the UK and Ireland in 2019, quite successfully. I think I'd have to get a new stat for you guys, but I, I believe it's up to 30% of that build to rent market, quote unquote, in, in the UK is certified with us. But ultimately, I think we were going to launch this in North America before long. We actually expedited that slightly off the back of COVID, talking to our clients and those who we'd work with on office assets who were also developers or owners, operators of multifamily real estate who kind of expressed interest here. And basically, I don't need to tell you in the last year how all of us have had frustrations with with connectivity at home, right? And so those building multifamily real estate today are realizing this is something that they just really can't obviously afford to get wrong. And so we're excited to be launching that in North America. So that's in June, just as a timing perspective there. And ultimately, it's going to be the global benchmark, again, for digital connectivity in multifamily. Yeah, I mean, we've done prop tech episodes where we talked about the effects of COVID accelerating some businesses and, of course, decelerating many others. And, and I don't want to be indelicate, mm-hmm. but COVID is quite the sales pitch for ensuring that you have very reliable, stable connections via your home. Everybody's yeah. doing it from home now. So I, I, I hate to, you know, silver lining is the best way of putting it. But I see why you accelerated the release of that because it is top of mind for everybody right now. Apartment developers must be talking to you in big numbers at this point. Yeah, we're really proud to have already started working with the likes of Kingset and Starlight, Cadillac Fairview, among others, for some of their residential developments, which will be showcased in our North American launch. You know, in the U.S., we're, we're working with Graystar and Heinz and, and Skanska. So we're really excited about the partners we have in that space. And again, it's just resonated really well, Adam. You're right. I mean, they all know that this is something mission critical to the success of their projects. And look, developers have a million and one things to think about when they're building these buildings, right? We, we simply know one area of real estate kind of better than anyone. And, and so we're really happy to come into that space and help them and get that right. I mean, the reality is, I think the understanding or the savviness, if you will, of the, of the renter today on what goes into connectivity has increased in the last year, right? People understand it in the way they didn't before. And ultimately, I mean, you guys are in the multifamily space. Like internet is the fourth utility, right? You're not going to deliver multifamily without water and electricity and gas. And what You can't not have this proper. But I think what's exciting about internet connection and in-building technology is that while it is table stakes, while you got to get it right and all those great things, it's actually a real opportunity to stand out, right? There's going to be an increased polarization in the market of the buildings that really can continue to drive, I think, market rents. And this will be one factor of that in terms of delivering. Look, people are working from home and they will continue to in certain percentages. I don't think office is going anywhere by any stretch, but we all know some people will work from home indefinitely. And at least some people will work from home quite a bit or or some portion of the time. People are more educating themselves more from home, but it's also Actually, I'll maybe in that little quiz moment, Adam, like how many devices do you think are connected devices in the average Canadian home? In my house, I mean, I'd ballpark it at 10, <laughs> probably. Yeah, 10 devices. There and you go. when it goes down, there's two kids that are very upset. And, uh, you know, I've got an employer yeah. that's not getting a, any attention from me at home. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not quite as dramatic <laughs> yeah. as maybe the heat going out in the winter, but it's pretty close. 
you know, it's, uh, it's, hey, it's you know, I was, <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. And, and quite honestly, it was funny because I was talking to a developer at a Philly area earlier today, actually, they're a major developer in the U S and we were talking about this and he goes, Andrew, he goes, we do student housing too. He goes, I know you just called it the fourth utility in student housing. It's the only utility. He goes, they don't, care. they wouldn't care if the, if, if the heat was on or the water, water was running they, they would prioritize it. Right. But, but yeah, actually, so you say 10, it's actually somewhere around 10 to 12 on average. Right. And, and so obviously you go, okay, you got your computers and tablets, of course, your phones, and you got your smart TVs, but smart appliances, you got your Pelotons. And of course, gaming is so massive and growing year by year. And it's just, is such a driver towards the way people think about where they want to live. And then again, in multifamily, you have this increased opportunity by way of common areas and amenities to continue to drive that experience. So truthfully, it's been so well received. We're really excited about that. So I appreciate asking about it. And I think there's just a, a great opportunity for, and again, from a Canadian market perspective, and frankly, you know, this space better than I do. It's, it's nice to be bringing this to market at a time where we're finally seeing quality rental product being built in a meaningful way again, right? Versus condo where we still are working with condo developments. But when you're developing something to then hold and have as a long-term income producing property, you're going to want to think about those things that are going to help keep occupancy high and, and drive rents. So yeah, pushing every little bit of rent definitely hips the value. And so of course that says top of mind. Well, yeah. you are you are head of Canada course. Let's talk about that a little bit. Have you uh, collected any data on cities that stand out? You mentioned buildings that stand out. Have you done market to market comparisons within Canada for who's uh, who's ahead of the game and who's behind? Yeah, that's a good one. Yes, we have. And by way of kind of the, the market average scores from, from city to city, probably not surprisingly, Toronto and Vancouver do stand out slightly. But what I think is great, and I think and this speaks to the way our industry is in such that so many of our major owners and developers in Canada do own across the various major cities. So you, you kind of see a consistency of product that way, which is, which is great. So there's not a massive disparity the way we frankly kind of see sometimes in, in, in U.S. market by market. But I would say certainly that the average wired score certification score for, say, Toronto and Vancouver building by building like on average is slightly higher than the rest of the major cities, but all of them being very, very kind of close in terms of, of the level of quality as well. And, and frankly, I see kind of Montreal really starting to push the envelope. We're, we're doing quite a lot of work there and it's, it's great to see. And again, I think it's not surprising when you see the office absorption happen from certain sectors that demand certain things, that it starts to push the industry toward thinking about this in a different way. They talk about Northern Canada having a, a bit of a gap in terms of internet connectivity as compared to the rest of the country. Have you done any work in any smaller markets, the top half of the country? Not so much. I mean, of course, we have we've wouldn't call it necessarily top half, but Edmonton, of course, we've done some work and we've done a little bit of work out east as well. But beyond major cities, there's certainly a challenge to connectivity in this country by fact, <laughs> by way of the fact, rather, that we're vast, right? There's a lot of land to cover, right? And And I think Sometimes what people, and admittedly myself maybe, when I really started to get into this in my role, underappreciated exactly how much physical infrastructure the internet is, right? We've got our phones. I'm not hardwired into the internet right now on my laptop. You're probably sitting on your home Wi-Fi. But the only thing wireless really about what you're experiencing right now is from your laptop to your router, right? Everything from there 
to the end of the internet and back is physical infrastructure, right? And so when you think about our fiber network in Canada, there's a lot of great, great investment happening in that space, but it's just a challenge by way of landmass, really. So what I think is going to be super interesting is things like Starlink, right? Elon Musk's satellite internet services, which by the way, are I just learned recently are, are actually <laughs> available in Canada, which is kind of interesting for cottagers and things like that, right? But it's not meant for cottagers. You hear talk about it in helping remote areas of the world, not just remote areas of a large country like Canada, have proper access to internet because it's interesting to think about it or start to think about it almost as a right and how far behind you become without access to it. It's certainly a challenge, Adam, in the more remote areas by way of infrastructure, right? To the buildings, let alone in the buildings, which is what we look at. It's so funny you brought up Starlink, Andrew. I was literally talking to my mother-in-law who at her cottage where she basically lives, you know, they've got cameras and weathered things and three iPads and four TVs. And like, I don't know, they're, so they're, they're really struggling with just through one little phone line to power mm-hmm. everything. And it's not like they're super techie. They just, they're connected like the rest of us are yeah. to these days. Of right? And so she's on the Starlink beta testing and she's getting the stuff and, and that's Good the for solution her. for them. Because I mean, they, they, to your point, you know, they can't wait for fiber to be connected to the cottage in the middle of the Kawarthas or wherever they are, right? So, no, uh, and as, no, you, as you're, no. to your point, that's not the reason Starlink's going to be really valuable, but it is a very applicable use early in its, in its life. And that's maybe no, a great no transition over to just how useful this is in the future. I think as we all know, technology accelerates and accelerates and accelerates. We haven't even started talking about like, the Internet of Things, even though that's been a, something on everyone's mind for, I guess, three, four, five years yeah. now. But I don't think we've really totally. seen it. Like, I know it's there, and if we think deeply about it, it probably exists, but it doesn't exist to the fashion that we really anticipate it to. Nope. So, nope. so how does your company kind of keep ahead of those curves, right? Because ultimately, that really is your job, to kind of give guidance and advice to these owners but these are the things you need to be thinking about. It's not about today. Like you know, we, I asked you the question about developers are the early stages of development versus existing buildings. The existing buildings probably have it easier because they can just kind of continually update. You're building something from scratch. You kind of want to future proof to a certain degree, don't you? And so, how do those conversations yes. go when you're having that? When you're when you're in those boardrooms? It's a great question, Aaron. So, kind of two things. One, I'll come back to you when you talk about Internet of Things. I think you're right. It's it's beyond infancy. I think something that's going to accelerate that in a way that none of us are really able to wrap our heads around truly, and I truly mean that right now, is 5G, right? So that is rolling out across Canada. That is, for many reasons, going to actually help facilitate the Internet of Things among many, many other things. But back to your kind of question, what I think ends up being a little bit comforting almost to developers is when they go, look, guys, how do we, like, how do we know? Like, we're designing something today that we're going to be designing for the next two years. Then we're going to break ground. We're deliver it in two, three years. Like, I, there's no way that the technology I'm going to implement in that building then even exists today, right? And they're right. Well, the biggest miss we see from a future-proofing perspective is space allocation, right? Like, again, I, and as I was mentioning, guys, like the internet is very, very physical, right? It requires a lot of infrastructure. And so I think what ends up happening is people intuitively think about you know, technology getting smaller, technology becoming more wireless, and those things are true. What goes underappreciated is, in fact, how much infrastructure goes into that, right? So you need more fiber. You need more space for infrastructure in your buildings. And that is, if you just have to say, what's the number one miss you see? It's improper or lack of space allocation, 
right? And I think actually that's why some engineers really appreciate when we when working with us because they're preaching similar things. But again, developers have so many things to think about. Value engineering conversations and meetings happen, of course, and and for whatever reason, telecom sometimes takes a back seat. And it's, but what do you mean you want a dedicated room? What, you're telling me you want two telecom rooms now? Are you crazy, right? But then you start to think about why and why do I need two rises? Why do they need to be bigger than I ever had before? And you obviously fiber backbones and the rest. So from a future-proofing or future-readying perspective, Aaron, I would say space allocation. And that's frankly, unfortunately, what older buildings sometimes are up against because they've only got so much space and a lot of it's allocated in other ways. Well, it's kind of the impossible task, of course, is the future of technology is, is murky. I mean, because the, the advancements can change the entire way we, we operate so quickly. Meanwhile, we're building structures for 80 years of use. It's such a mismatch <laughs> in terms of uh, timelines. Totally, totally. Yeah. Well, I mean, Adam, like, and kind of to go back to, to Aaron's other point, is technology is advancing at a ridiculous rate. It's advancing faster than real estate ever could, let alone want to. And so I think what Wired Score does, does a great job of is really t- t- to have a pulse on things that are coming down the line. And, and I'll actually come back to 5G because that's a great example of we in our inception and originally we were not scoring properties on how well mobily, right, from a mobile connection standpoint that, that buildings were set up. Well, for a number of years, we were educating the industry around what is 5G going to mean to real estate, right? And we could spend a whole other podcast on 5G in and outside of real estate, but ultimately, what was the challenge it was going to pose, right? And in short, what makes 5G so game-changing in, in large part is it's a much higher frequency than 4G. And so it travels less distance, right? And certainly doesn't like to penetrate things like building materials, low-E glass as an example. And so what we've been telling the market for a while is you need to be thinking about how you're going to help the tenants inside the building get a connection that doesn't want to come from outside to in. And there's different ways to think about that, of course, and different financial models around it. But it's something we actually spend a lot of time talking to our clients about. And our model is to kind of educate for future trends. And it's kind of like, spoiler alert, we're going to be scoring buildings on this before long, right? Because it's going to go from get ahead of it to it's here and you have to be able to deliver on it. That's kind of, we see ourselves in the position of really helping the industry see what's coming down the line being that kind of you know, advisor, educator in that sense, and hopefully being able to help them get ahead of future trends. You know, Andrew, we're almost done. So I got one last question for you. And thanks so sure. much for this. It's such an interesting topic. I think it's just, like you said, it's kind of in its infancy still. And I, I think it's, uh, again, very, very fascinating. Do you appreciate that you are in itself an oxymoron? For those that know Andrew, Andrew is a avid outdoorsman and spends all of his time not working trying to get away from connectivity, but all of his other time <laughs> trying to endorse and advocate for connectivity. I mean, how do you manage that lying awake at night? <laughs> I love that. And I love that you didn't tell me you're going to ask me that even more. You know what? It's funny is that it's actually made me think about connectivity in a much different way. And, and quite honestly, because if I think about this from a personal perspective, you're right. I would love to spend all of my free time, not in urban city centers, right? But here I am with a role that's helping manage and grow a Canadian business and I need to be connected for that. And so how do I balance those things? Well, again, it needs more connectivity. It needs the ability to spread that wider. And I think that's, that's what's fascinating to me. And, and the built environment struggles, whether it's in Toronto or it's in some small town in Northern Ontario, where I'd rather be to go fishing with Adam, right? Like it's, but it's everywhere. It's not going away. And 
the irony is that that connectivity, that technology is actually what will enable us to have more freedom in those ways. So I think it's, it's kind of an interesting intersection that way. Aaron, I love the last question there. I mean, it, it is funny. There's a, a week or two in the fall where I know Andrew's out in the woods and his autoresponder, his email specifies, I, there, I have no access to email. And I know it is truly no access. And maybe you should, you should yep. adjust it uh, to say, you know, very poor wired score <laughs> where I am right now. <laughs> or or maybe, thanks to Elon, maybe I can be connected everywhere. Or maybe that's something we don't want, but for yeah. better or for worse, right? Yeah. Yeah, Andrew, this is super interesting. I think you're definitely one of those guests where we could have you back on in a year and there will be a whole lot more to talk about because everything is rapidly yeah. moving. But uh, I do appreciate what you shared today, a solid hour of, uh, of your time. I want to thank First National for powering the podcast, of course, and uh, the listeners for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. Aaron and I are going to do the after show next, but if you want to check out more about Wirescore, we'll put a link in the show notes to the Wirescore website and look for it in buildings when you are out in the market. It will become more and more relevant as the weeks go on. But uh, Andrew, thanks again. Thank you guys. Really, really enjoyed it. And always good to chat with you guys. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show where Aaron and I share our thoughts on the episode that was just recorded. Andrew is an interesting guest. This is definitely something a little out of our wheelhouse, maybe not the way to put it, but at the fringe of what we regularly do. This is a new concept. They're really trying to push a new standard. I think it will catch on. I mean, I think that they'll end up for sure, like the way walk score is critical now to residential real estate. You've got to think that wire score will end up being integral when you're looking at the value of a building from either a tenant perspective, a purchase perspective, a lending perspective. Having something that's easily understandable would be super beneficial to the industry. Yeah, I found this a really interesting, as you said, it's kind of outside of our wheelhouse, but you can only spend so much time talking about retail office and industrial and having something like this in our community, I think is just so interesting, just where we're going. And just hearing him talk about how it's still not necessarily on many people's radars. I mean, he kind of listed off some of his clients, but they're all like the really, really large institutions that are probably a little bit more cutting edge, probably a little bit more willing to think outside the box for this stuff and trying to future-proof buildings. I mean, the one comment he talked about with you know, a 10-year development horizon and people approaching him on how to figure out what they need to do so that whatever technology is in place in 10 years that their building can be accommodating. And he just said, you just need to build space that can absorb whatever it is that's going to be needed in that time. I just find that just really fascinating that you've got these developers now just saying, hey, let's just put away Here's 300 square feet. That's for something later. Don't know what yet, but it's there. I know I need it, right? The next big thing will go here. We don't know what it is at this time. I think you might have touched on part of the answer, though, is, yeah, like the big institutions, yeah, they're thinking about 50-year time horizons for investment. And yeah, maybe a small operator, they're thinking, well, I'm going to own this for seven years and sell it. And that's the kind of sum total rationale put into it. I mean, not to minimize what smaller operators are doing. There's some very intelligent smaller operators, but maybe that is part of it. Just the time horizons for those large institutions are so long. You know, it'd be measured in lifetimes. I mean, we did talk about it, but I I honestly think the biggest driver of that business will be tenants saying, well, what's your wired score? Like I'm looking for new space, but I want to make sure that I've got access, particularly if tenants are thinking longer term, right? It might be a five or a 10 year lease, but tenants don't like jumping around every five years, right? They want to be in a building for long term if there's growth potential. 
So knowing that that building's got the capacity or the design to change as technology changes is going to be the thing that really gets our landlord community to start thinking about this stuff. Well, then I'll ask for a First National specific example, Aaron, because you're in operations, so I'm sure you got visibility on this. How much conversation did you have prior to the pandemic outbreak in March when everybody went home versus after everybody got sent home about our IT infrastructure's ability to handle all of a sudden now a thousand remote workers that were not contemplated two weeks previous? Well, yeah. I mean, the reality is I don't think anybody thought about it. We always had a BCP business continuity plan in place. And I was part of that, just making sure we tested it. We had an offsite location where we could go and send workers. And we were thinking about our critical business processes and all that kind of stuff. I don't think anybody possibly imagined. I think it was more like, what if you ever that G8 scenario where there was some rioting downtown where you know one could get to the 100 University, get to our office building. Like that was the kind of thought process or a major snowstorm where you couldn't get anywhere and the GO train wasn't running for five days. Like that was the kind of logic. No one was thinking about, can we all work from home for a year straight, right? Like it was just so far out there. And you're right. Now it's something that you're constantly thinking about, right? How does this work? What does it look like? Going back to the office, back to kind of the kind of stuff that Andrew's thinking about, I think it certainly is more of a complex discussion now, right? Because there's servers and there's the cloud and how do you get all this stuff connected? Think about you and I sitting here. If you've got one office space where we all work and that was where you were concerned about, but now if you have, I mean, we're 1,200 office spaces, but let's say you go back to 600 at the office and 600 out, you've got 600 office spaces really that you need to be worried about. So you can't have one thing go down where all 600 offices, quote unquote, home offices get shut down. And so I'm assuming, I'm sure that's kind of the stuff. I mean, that we should probably should have asked that question. That's the kind of stuff that Andrew's really focusing his clients on, make sure that they're thinking about that stuff to make sure that their building is proofed so that it can withstand any of those shocks. You know, the other thing that I thought was interesting is this home score that they've just announced and released, right? And just how they're focusing on multifamily business also, because there's a ton of usage. Again, that kind of links to working from home. You've got bandwidth issues, really, right? If your building can't manage the number of people sitting there on their Wi-Fi, that's going to be a serious risk, right? Like tenants will leave. If they can't get really strong Wi-Fi connections in their units, like they will get up and go somewhere else. Well, yeah, you got to wonder how long it is before, obviously, we're at the forefront of the multifamily lending, how long we start evaluating buildings on merits other than simply what the rental income is. When you start looking at those kinds of things, you know, do you see a two-year time horizon, three-year time horizon where these kinds of less monetary issues come to the forefront? Yeah, maybe, right? Like It depends on that whole work-from-home thing. I mean, let's just play the what-if game. Work from home becomes sort of a consistent thing where it's always half the population works from home. And so the connectivity and the bandwidth of the building, or if you're working from home, there's a premium, you'll pay for an extra office space. But if you know you're working from home, you got to make sure that you've got the sufficient connectivity in order to never lose connection. You don't have your Zoom meetings dropping off or you're blitzing out. And so do tenants pay a premium for that? And then as lenders, do we need to investigate that that landlord has the capacity to ensure that those premium rents continue in the future as a result of their wired score or whatever, right? So I don't know. Who knows? That's a big what if, but you never know. You can see it go in there. Yeah, it's a bit of a rabbit hole, but it is just becoming more and more important with every passing day. So maybe you'll be correct. Or not. I'm usually not. That's okay. I'll take it. Anyway, thanks to our listeners for sticking around, listening to the after show for Adam and I kind of just bounce ideas off each other or not. Good ideas sometimes, bad ideas most of the time, but that's okay. We're not here to be the idea men. Thank you to First National for powering the podcast. And thanks for listening and see you guys again later. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. 
The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.